0: For more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: There very well may be people that have had to pay the ULA tax, maybe they had to pay a million dollars in ULA tax, had a big property they sold. We could perhaps talk to them to try to get that money back.
2: Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast.
0: Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with
2: none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Keith Fromm. Keith is joining us from Los Angeles, California. He is an attorney, litigator, real estate developer, and a licensed real estate broker. Keith has been a real estate developer for over 40 years Keith, thank you for joining us, and how are you today? Thank
1: you, Ash. I'm great. Thanks for having me.
2: It's our pleasure. Keith, if you would, give the Best Ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now.
1: Well, I started out as a real estate lawyer with two large firms in Los Angeles, and from there I became a real estate developer doing condo projects and then eventually doing land development. And as anyone in land development knows, once you start with subdivisions and land development, you end up in litigation with cities. So I sort of segued again from being a real estate attorney to a real estate litigation attorney dealing with cities and stuff, which brings me to where I am today, essentially, which is fighting the notorious ULA tax in Los Angeles and the lead litigator on one of the two lawsuits that's challenging it.
2: Keith, we'll come back to your background. Can you let the best ever listeners know what the ULA tax is?
1: Yeah, the ULA tax is a tax that was imposed by initiative of the voters on November 8th, 2022. It was sold to the public as a, quote, mansion tax, unquote, and it imposes a 4% of the gross proceeds tax on properties that are over $5 million, and if the properties are $10 million or over, then the tax jumps up to 5.5% of the gross proceeds. So despite the fact that they called it a mansion tax, it really applies to all real estate of any kind, industrial, shopping centers, office buildings, raw land, parking lots, what have you. And it's creating a lot of havoc and a lot of unfairness in the city of Los Angeles amongst people in the real estate community.
2: Is this just towards the city properties, or is it countywide? No, it's
1: only for properties in the city of Los Angeles. The city of Los Angeles has become sort of its own little monarchy and has imposed a tax on these properties. That's approximately 10 times the size of the normal documentary transfer tax, in a sense, hijacking tax revenues. So there's a lot of things wrong with this tax, and it's really hurting the economy here.
2: They want a percentage of gross proceeds. How is that a mansion tax? Because if I live in a mansion, there's no proceeds. Well, they're talking about if you sell your property. If you sell a property and you
1: want to record the deed, a condition of recording the deed is that for properties of $5 million to $10 million, you pay them 4% of the gross. Obviously, what's really wrong with this is some people don't even have any equity in their properties, or very little, or they've been paying their whole life to save up, perhaps a four percent equity, and now all of that goes to the government, and it's really very, very unfair. A lot of people, for example, builders, a lot of merchant builders will build a house if they can make a twelve percent gross return on the gross proceeds of the property. So, if they were building a house, or let's say any building of any kind and it cost them $10 million to build it. If they could make a million and a half on the deal, they would do it. But it takes a lot of risk. They go get loans. They have to go through entitlement processes, all different kinds of things. And then this tax all of a sudden comes out in the middle of what they're doing, and they find they can't make that kind of money, and they would never have done it in the first place if they'd known that the bulk of potential profit that they were hoping to make was going to go straight to the government and not to go to them and to their companies to pay their wages and all the other things they have to do. So it was really very unfair. It it was essentially retroactive legislation that just killed a lot of people. And it's killed the market as well. So it's a double whammy for some of these people because not only are they not going to make the profit that they had projected when they first went into it, but because it has killed the whole market They can't even get the prices that they'd hoped to get before. So it's really screwing up a lot of people. The same thing with lenders, for example. Lenders will make loans on a certain loan-to-value ratio, and they calculate their risks, and they calculate the interest rates, et cetera, that are applicable to that. But if they had known in advance that if they were to take a property back and try to resell it, they'd have to pay 5.5% of the gross, they never would have made that loan so what's happened now is a lot of lenders are not making loans in the city of Los Angeles, and it's just killing the industry.
2: Keith, has this law taken effect right now?
1: Yes, it did. It was passed by initiative on November 8th, 2022, and it took effect um, April 1st, 2023. So all sales that happened after April 1st of 2023 have been subject to this tax.
2: Okay, so one of my jobs on this show is to play devil's advocate. So- California already has a rule where if you live in an area where your house has a ton of appreciation, but you've lived there for many years, your property taxes don't go up until you sell the property, right? So this way, somebody who bought a $200,000 house in 1970, that's now worth 3 million, doesn't get taxed out of their home. What's the silver lining on this law? Is it that there's going to be less transfers and less sales of property. How does that really hurt anything? I think it's actually worse than that because when the city imposes this
1: tax, what happens is properties turn over less frequently and therefore they reassess less frequently. So therefore, the county does not get the higher taxes that it was used to getting when properties turned over at market rate. So it's a dual whammy. It's bad. To begin with, because it kills the owners of the properties who are trying to sell, and it's bad because it kills the county's sources of taxation on high-end properties like office buildings, shopping centers. For example, there was one major shopping center owner that was planning on selling all of their shopping centers, and because of the ULA tax, they decided not to do it just one of those shopping centers would have been over a billion dollars. So I'm sure that the reassessment for property tax purposes would have been enormous, which meant that the county would have gotten a much higher stream of income in the future because of this. But instead, this ULA tax imposed by the city has killed the county's ability to get those money. So I don't think there's any silver lining. I think it's just two bad linings on this cloud, two black linings on it.
2: Keith, I may have one more for you. So, look, I've worked hard my whole life and I've saved up a lot of money. I'm about to be able to buy a mansion. And the problem is, historically, all these rich people have been bidding and buying these mansions. The prices have become astronomical. So, I like that the mansion prices are coming down. So now, a new to be mansion owner and I can afford one. What's wrong with that?
1: Well, I don't think that initially the prices has necessarily come down. I think what happens is the people that are truly rich, we're just talking about mansions. Mansions really are the least of this tax because it covers shopping centers, office buildings, industrial buildings, everything. They just sold it as a mansion tax because that was politically very attractive to people, class warfare. But what's really happened in the market is it's frozen the high-end market. The people who are truly rich and have mansions who might have sold them, Say, I'm not going to pay that tax. I have enough money. I can sit with this. My children or my grandchildren will sell that house at some time. So it's simply not on the market. And as a result, there really is very little high-end residential property on the market right now. The only ones that are selling are, and this is in total contradiction of what the act was supposedly passed for, because they said only millionaires and billionaires will be selling these properties and paying the taxes. The only people essentially that are selling them now are the people that have to sell them, that are desperate to sell them and are not the millionaires and billionaires, but need the cash, maybe to pay a loan that is maturing or loans that have interest rates that have gone up or because they were merchant builders that had timed out on their loans or any number of things. But all it's done really is the sales that are taking place are only the, the desperate people, and we don't have that much product. So it's not really helpful to anybody who wants to buy either.
2: Yeah, and while this may seem like a micro problem, there's a lot of municipalities that are running low on cash or that are negative on their balance sheets, So this is very likely to spread to other cities as well. But Keith, I've got to ask you, I would imagine there was a fair amount of opposition while this legislation was being brought into law, why did that opposition not win? And what makes you think you can repeal this law now?
1: Well, I think a lot of people in the real estate industry were really surprised when this thing just sort of sneaked through. It was not really a very well-known initiative. I think that a lot of the people in the real estate industry were sort of asleep at the switch. There was some opposition to it, but not a great amount of opposition to it. The other thing is it was a bill that was proposed by organized labor and organized labor by the nature of it is better organized, I think, than the real estate community, which tends to be very balkanized. You have agents selling houses, you have developers building industrial buildings, you have owners of shopping centers, you have hotels, you've got all different things, but they're not really united and they didn't really unite and focus on opposing this. So they just really, I think, got Caught by surprise. Now, from the standpoint of what I'm doing, I think there are a great number of infirmities in this law that violate various constitutional provisions. So, if you say, well, why do you think that you can get it overturned? I'm trying to get it overturned as a matter of law in the courts of law, as opposed to trying to get it overturned in a political process by doing a counter initiative. Now, there is, I understand, a, a counter initiative on the table. That will go before the voters in 2024 to try to overturn the ULA, but I'm focusing on the legal aspects of it and showing why, as a matter of equal protection, for example, it's not a fair law. A novel argument, I think, is that as a matter of freedom of speech, it's not a fair law because you're preventing people from recording their deeds unless they pay at least $200,000, whereas other people can record their deeds without paying anything or just paying the standard documentary transfer tax, which is relatively small. And if you look at a deed, there's really a lot of expressive information on a deed. It can tell you the whole history of the property. It can tell you whether it was part of a Spanish land grant. It can tell you whether it has easements for pedestrians, for maintenance, whether it has oil rights, whether you can put oil rigs on it or you can't. It tells a lot of stories. So I think that by saying that somebody cannot record their deed and announce all of this information that's on a deed to the whole world unless they pay an enormous amount of money, you're also violating their right of freedom of speech. So we're basically in this lawsuit where we've looked at it and tried to do sort of a constitutional law textbook on all the things that are wrong with this ULA tax and attacking it in every possible way.
2: That's a really interesting approach. And I think you answered my question. Why can't you just do an entity transfer to the seller? And it's because they get you at the deed recording level. Is right. That
1: right. That's okay. right. A lender is not going to lend money on a, a large purchase if they don't have public notice that they have a lien on the property. You can't do it by stealth, basically. You know, you can't just kind of secretly have a loan and secretly have a transfer to people. The lenders wouldn't go for it.
0: We'll get back to the show with a first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. If you want to do bigger and better commercial real estate deals, take your real estate capital raising efforts to new heights with syndicationattorneys.com. With more than 20 years of real estate and investing experience, syndicationattorneys.com goes beyond just creating legal documents. They educate you on ethical and legal capital raising strategies. Plus, they offer a host of free resources, including their best-selling capital raising books numerous articles, and their popular podcast, Raise Private Money Legally. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more, more deals, bigger deals, and better deals. So if you want attorneys with premier experience helping syndicators and fund managers raise capital, go to syndicationattorneys.com today to schedule an appointment and unlock your maximum capital raising potential today at syndicationattorneys.com. This offer is not available to Florida residents. Ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet for anyone to see? The answer is more than you think. Government records, social media posts, even your self reported info, it's all being compiled by data brokers and sold to the highest bidders online. Anyone on the web can get your private details. This can lead to a higher risk of identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. I hate those spam calls. Well, I recently found a solution, and this is a new service called Delete Me. When I registered with Delete Me, they reviewed nearly 1,500 online listings and found more than 40 data brokers that had my personal info, my address, social security number, even info about my relatives. It's creepy stuff. Right at this moment, Delete Me is working to remove my information from those listings so I can take back control of my personal info and have a peace of mind I deserve and you deserve. Delete Me is on a mission to safeguard your privacy, and right now you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash Joe, use promo code Joe. Only way to get your 20% off is to go to joindeletemecom slash Joe. Enter promo code Joe at checkout. That's com slash Joe. Promo code Joe. Stay safe out there. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. Bam Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a 3 to 5 year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with Bam Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital. TheBamCompanies.com
2: Well, Keith, all the real estate investors are on your side. We're hoping you change the precedent that's been set in LA. So thank you for fighting this fight. I want to dive into your background, attorney, litigator, real estate developer. Tell the best ever listeners how you got into real estate development.
1: Well, interesting story. I started out as a junior lawyer in a couple of large law firms representing developers and syndicators, and they were booming times when I first started in the industry. So I would get calls at 2 o'clock in the morning from my clients on their yachts. I could hear champagne glasses clinking in the background, and they'd be saying, is that contract going to be on my desk at 8 o'clock in the morning? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm working on it now. But then the market shifted. Interest rates went way up. They went all the way to 22% for construction loans and all of the developers were in trouble so instead of doing new deals we were doing a lot of workouts and i realized at that time many of the bankers had no experience in taking back properties or what to do with properties that were in trouble so i left the practice of law and i started a company to help banks basically take back properties because they were just scared to death. I could see in the negotiations we were doing, I could get them to pay for my clients' houses on the beach, the yacht payments, all of that, because they were just afraid these guys would go bankrupt. And then what are they going to do? So I started a company at that time, figuring that all these banks would line up and, and go for me. Well, it was a tough pill to swallow, but basically a lot of tough times for a few months. And then finally, I got one banker that says, all right, I got a little project in North Hollywood seven units, you can sell that one for me. And the day of the grand opening of it, it had all these beautiful flowers planted in front of it. It looked wonderful. So one of the guys that, you know, those large flags that they put in front of these buildings? Uh, The big flagpole. So so somebody goes and bangs a flagpole right through a water main in front of the building. and And water is gushing 40 feet up in the air and I can see my flowers just floating down the street. Everything that could go wrong on this project went wrong. I had a telephone number that I put in the newspaper ads, and the day before the opening, the telephone company tells me I can't have that number. They gave it to somebody else. So now all my phones are going God knows where. It's raining cats and dogs. It was just absolutely miserable. The only good thing that happened was the project sold out that weekend. (laughs) Otherwise, it was a catastrophe. Then from that, I got involved in selling more properties and then selling the buildings. And then eventually when I had accumulated enough money from the sale of the buildings as a broker, I started buying the buildings and I'd buy them and I'd fix them up, sell them, buy some more buildings, fix them up, sell them and kept doing that until uh, I had a, a partner who had worked for a big builder and he had showed me that land development could be very, very profitable, buying land, subdividing it, and then selling the subdivided properties to builders to build houses on. So we got involved with that, and then I learned how the cities basically screw you around on that kind of stuff. So I ended up in litigation with a city on a couple projects we had, and it ended up being constitutional law cases. One was in state court, one was in federal court, Surprisingly, these are my first cases ever as a litigator, and I won both of them. They were multi-million dollar trials. So that kind of started me in this direction. An irony of this particular case is that one of the lawyers that I was up against 20 years ago in these two cases that I just referred to is the same lawyer that is in charge of the city's litigation in the ULA case. So it's almost like a reunion. It's one of those ironies that you see in a movie where it is a 20-year rematch on this situation.
2: Keith, if you weren't fighting the ULA, what would you be doing? Probably be fighting somebody. (laughs) Is it the real estate development or is it buying and improving properties or is it the law practice? What do you enjoy the most?
1: I've enjoyed them all at different times. I think The most lucrative, of course, was the real estate development. If you hit it right, you can make a lot of money, as everybody in real estate knows. The litigation aspects of it are very mentally challenging. I think it keeps you sharp in that sense. You're constantly thinking, you're constantly reading, you're constantly analyzing things, you're arguing, the adrenaline is pumping. So that does make you feel alive. But the real estate development aspects of it were lucrative and also to see a Property that's in an unfinished state and then doing things with it and completing it and making it pretty and making it attractive and, and then having other people like it to the point that they actually buy it is a gratifying experience as well. So uh, there's so many aspects of real estate that are gratifying.
2: What were some of the keys that made you a successful real estate developer? I think having to bounce back
1: from adversity and, and having curveballs thrown at you and being versatile, I think. I'll give you one example. I had a a project in uh, Bay Point, California, which was a very low-end project. And we expected that our market would be VA, FHA, low-income people. And it just wasn't cutting it. But we had a salesman who was half Hispanic. And he said, you really should try to market it to the Hispanics. At that time, I didn't know If the Hispanics had money, I didn't know if they were in the market. It was a relatively new thing to me. But we tried, we did some very, very corny commercials on the Hispanic TV stations, and we were flooded with Hispanic buyers, hundreds and hundreds of them. And the project sold out very quickly, and we really learned a lot about the Hispanic families and how they all supported each other, and they all seemed to chip in on the down payments. And it was a whole new market to me. So we sold that one out, and then I tried another one. I figured, well, I'll do the same thing in San Jose. So we opened it up in San Jose, and we market largely to the Hispanic community, and we're getting nothing. I can't understand. Why aren't we getting anywhere? Well, in San Jose, the predominant demographic was Vietnamese people. So we quickly changed the same commercials that we had, only we dubbed them in Vietnamese, which was the most ridiculous-looking thing in the world, but it actually worked. It was like the old sort of Bruce Lee kung fu movies where the lips are moving, but the sound is not synced with the way the lips are going. And then we were flooded with a lot of Vietnamese buyers, and that one was a success. So the point, I think, is that you have to roll with your market. Your market will tell you who they are if you give them a chance. And then you have to cater to the market that has already told you who they are in so many cases, there is a certain uniformity of of demographics that is just drawn to a certain type of product. And you have to be listening and watching. So I think that a suggestion to people if they're in the business.
2: Here's a challenge for you. What if your market is wealthy, accredited investors that want to invest passively in real estate? What kind of commercial would you produce for that?
1: Well, I suppose the commercials that have been done by the crowd funders have been very effective, up until now anyway, has worked well. I think that if I were marketing to that demographic right now, given what's happened with, I guess it was CrowdStreet, I believe, you'd have to emphasize the safety and the due diligence that you take in sequestering their monies and not using them until the deal is done and they go straight through an escrow and the escrow closes. Otherwise, I would say that the crowdfunders have done very well in attracting a lot of capital to them. But I think now they have a challenge in convincing people of a couple of things. One, that their money is safe. And two, that the future returns are not going to be the same as the past returns. They're just not, not yet anyway. So those are the challenges for that.
2: Keith, let's dive into the best ever lightning round. What is the best ever book you recently read?
1: Sadly... Because I've been involved in all this litigation, I don't get to read any books. I haven't read books in forever. I'm constantly reading. I read hundreds of pages a day. But it's stuff that nobody outside of lawyers, not even outside of lawyers, nobody wants to read. I, I have to read it because it's part of the case. And the only satisfaction I can get out of doing that is that I know that I'm inflicting as much punishment on other people as I'm having to take myself because they have to read all of my briefs as well. So, sadly, I haven't read any books as much as I would love to. I'm constantly reading, but nothing that would be of any interest to any of your
2: viewers. Keith, what's the best ever way you like to give back?
1: Well, I do have a foundation that I started. It's called the Stradel Court Mansion Foundation, and it's basically, I try to give opportunities to budding talent to show people what they can do with the hopes that somebody in the business, whatever field they're in, we'll see them and possibly give them a chance to foster their talents and maybe to
2: expose them to a greater area of the public. Finally, Keith, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you?
1: The best way to reach out to me is to do it on our website, FightULA. That's all one word, fight like a fight, and com. And all of our contact information is on that site. So if they could reach out on the site. I have an email address, keith at fightula.com, so they can contact me that way directly. And I would invite them to do so.
2: Keith, thank you for sharing your time today. A law that many of us didn't even know was in effect. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Best of luck with the fight.
1: Thank you very much. And thanks for having me today. I appreciate it